as I mentioned last evening, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was, was a very important, still is a very important teacher, his teachings and personal contact were tremendously helpful, uh, died two mornings ago. What I'd like to do in the talks for the remainder of this retreat is um, briefly, with as much clarity as I can, show my appreciation by um, talking about a few of the important themes that uh, his teachings touch upon. One, uh, which didn't interest me at all for the first almost 15 years that I was influenced by his teaching, is the teaching on Anapanasati, full awareness of breathing. Another, which caught my attention and uh, helped clarify my practice immensely, almost from the very beginning, many, many years ago, were his, uh, to me, unparalleled teaching in terms of clarity, simplicity and directness having to do with self, having to do with the, the emptiness of self. And so <clears throat> what I'd like to do is um, briefly this evening give you an overall sense of the, the sutra the full awareness of breathing, uh, so that I can then, perhaps tonight, but probably more than likely in our next, uh, the next time we have contact, to give you a short version of how to practice with this, which uh, has a lot of opening for creativity and for individual differences and preferences along the path. So that uh, I hope one of the things that comes out of the retreat, in addition to a deeper understanding of this sutra and its implications for understanding the self, are more clarity in this art of practice so that you yourself can guide yourself and develop the confidence to know what you need to do if you're drawn to this practice. Before we start, I'd like to give a very brief teaching on the heat. Uh, I hesitated giving these teachings because I've given them many times. I hesitated out of compassion, first and foremost for Corrado who's had to hear them many times. <laughs> but also for many of you. Uh, my fear was not that you would fall over from heat prostration, but from intensive boredom. Just, uh, no, not again. Now, I felt a little defensive in giving this teaching, since I know many of you have heard it many times. So to take care of my defensiveness, 
what I'd like to ask those of you, it's on killing hot, killing cold, hot Buddha, cold Buddha. If inside you're saying, oh no, not again, let me ask you, have you done it yet? I know you've heard it a lot, but have you done it yet? If so, I'll shut up when you have done it. And when I've done it, then I'll stop. So I think you may have to hear it again, because very often it's either cold or hot. And by extension, you know, it's everything. It's a teaching story in which the student asks the teacher, how do you practice when it's very hot or when it's very cold, which it often is in Asia in the monasteries because they don't have a lot of the, they don't have air conditioning or, in fact, often intentionally, they don't have uh, heat or air conditioning. They could even afford it. They don't, they don't want it. And so a fair amount of, a good deal of the year, you're practicing and you're either hot or cold. So the student asks, how do you practice when it's hot, when it's cold? And the teacher uh, quickly fires back, kill hot, kill cold. And then a number of generations of practitioners have debated what that means. What does it mean to kill hot or kill cold? And I'll skip all the different answers, all of which are interesting, but uh, the main one is that in attempting to answer how you kill hot and how you kill cold, one of the teachers responds that just said, hot Buddha, cold Buddha. Further to clarify that, when it's hot, the Buddha sits and sweats. When it's cold, the Buddha sits and shivers. Well, we already know how to do that, don't we? Well, the question is, do we? What's implied here is that the best way to deal with the discomfort of, of hot or cold, assuming we've taken care of fans and all the rest of it, and now we've reached a point where we have no more technology available. This is it. What the teaching is saying is that just totally and thoroughly be hot totally and thoroughly be cold. Typically, that's not what we do. We divide ourselves. We separate from the experience, wishing it would, would be colder, waiting for the talk or whatever it is to end so that we can get a cold drink, uh, taking it personally. Uh, wishing we had not come the endless ways in which the mind separates itself from the experience. And what the teacher is saying is that the Buddha just totally sits in sweat, totally sits in cold. And if you do that, if you don't fight it, uh, you're still hot and you're still cold, but it's different. Okay, let me um, now begin the, uh, this brief overview of the teaching of the full awareness of breathing. I'd like to begin to put what we've been doing already since Friday evening in perspective. Let me read to you from the teachings of Charlotte Joko Beck, who has a center outside of San Diego. Some of you know her teaching. And this is what uh, she has to say.
Many years ago, I was a piano major at Oberlin Conservatory. I was a very good student. Not outstanding, but very good. And I very much wanted to study with one teacher who was undoubtedly the best. He'd take ordinary students and turn them into fabulous pianists. Finally, I got my chance to study with the teacher. When I went in for my lesson, I found that he taught with two pianos. He didn't even say hello. He just sat down at his piano and played five notes. And then he said, you do it. I was supposed to play it just the way he played it. I played it, and he said, no. He played it again, and I played it again. Again, he said, no. Well, we had an hour of that, and each time he said, no. In the next three months, I played about three measures, perhaps half a minute of music. Now I had thought I was pretty good. I'd played soloist with a little symphony orchestra. Yet we did this for three months, and I cried most of those three months. He had all the marks of a real teacher, that tremendous drive and determination to make the students see. That's why he was so good. And at the end of three months, one day he said, good. <laughs> what had happened? Finally, I'd learned to listen. And as he said, if you can hear it, you can play it. What had happened in those three months? I had the same set of ears I started with. Nothing had happened to my ears. What I was playing was not technically difficult. What had happened was that I had learned to listen for the first time. And I'd been playing the piano for many years. I learned to pay attention. That was why he was such a great teacher. He taught his students to pay attention. After working with him, they really heard they really listened. When you can hear it, you can play it. And finished, beautiful pianists would finally come out of his studio. That's what we're doing. The uh, shamatha practice, and by extension, everything that comes out of it, because it really just flows quite naturally from it, is very consistent with his teaching. Only what we're listening to is not the, the five note, musical notes, it's the breath. Just really listening to the breath. I've been listening to my own breath, attentive to my own breath for some time. Uh, it really takes quite some doing to get quiet. And then as you get quiet and quieter, uh, it's different. So we start off by learning how to really pay attention to something very simple, even simpler than what he was doing. Just this one, this in-breath and this out-breath. And as we learn to do that, the benefits, of course, that come from that in terms of the, the mind settling down, the body settling down, the mind being more stable and clear, are something that I hope all of you know, at least to some degree. But finally, it's the model for all of our work in Vipassana practice. Because if we can learn how to really listen to the breath, then the challenge becomes, just as 
the challenge in music became much more complicated pieces. The challenge for us becomes, can we learn to listen to fear? Can we learn to listen to boredom, sadness? Can we learn to listen to joy, and so forth? As we all know, when powerful moods and emotions come, especially the ones that we don't want to be there, trouble. It's not so easy to do. And yet the whole practice, all of it, the entire edifice of the Buddhist teaching rests on this simple art of paying attention. So much comes out of that, but that's the foundation. If we don't learn how to pay attention, then it's just a very beautiful intellectual exercise. Lovely words and ways of characterizing reality in our life. And we'll feel better. But for a, for a true transformation, the quality of attention is what is needed. And each time we pay attention to the breath, each time we pay attention to a step, each time we taste what we eat, each time we're awake as we wash the dishes or sweep the floor or listen to a talk, in that moment we've cultivated, we've planted a seed of mindfulness. The sutra starts very simply, almost the way this piano instruction uh, did. And that's what struck me about this example that uh, she gave. Uh, the affinity with it is quite remarkable. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just true of anything. That is, if you want to really do it, you have to pay attention. If you want to be a good criminal, I assume that you really have to learn how to do that. By the way, that's considered wrong samadhi, mitra samadhi. So it's not a Buddhist practice. <laughs> but you can have just as good concentration. It's just going in the wrong direction. In the uh, teaching, there are four sets of four, what are called four tetrads. What I'd like to do, um, if there's time this evening, if not uh, in one or two evenings, is to show you how in our practice here we can cover all four, four times four, which is 16. In this sutra, there are 16 interrelated contemplations, all having the breathing as part. Each contemplation is a slightly different way of examining breathing, of being with breathing. And all of them hang together. It's not just a random set of 16. It's a natural unfolding. It's, it has a, there's a, a method to it. Uh, very briefly, the first set of four is the body. Those of you who know the Satipatthana Sutra, the four foundations of mindfulness, which is the Declaration of Independence for Vipassana students. It's the basic text. Anapanasati is just the Satipatthana Sutra, only using the breathing to accomplish the very same ends. So it's very economical, simple, and direct, but it's the very same teaching. If you uh, fully develop Anapanasati, you fully develop the four foundations of mindfulness. So the, f the first foundation has to do with coming to know the body. The body here means the breath itself, as well as the flesh body. 
And we begin by just noticing that we're breathing in and out. And from that, before long, it becomes very clear that the world of the breath is quite a rich world, that the qualities of the breathing go through quite a bit of change. The breath is deep or shallow or fine or coarse. It's smooth or bumpy, slow or rapid. And refinements that I don't have words for. But there's no question that the breath is a very rich universe. No two breaths are the same. And so as we begin to pay attention to the quality of the breathing, that very quality changes. We're not trying to modify the breathing or control it as one might do in pranayama. Those many of you I know know, know yoga, hatha yoga. Pranayama, the control of breath, the life force, which is what breath is. It's not just oxygen. Or it is oxygen, depending on how you see what that is. So there's an elaborate science of breath control in India. And the Buddha came out of that tradition. The degree to which uh, the breath becomes uh, free, flowing, free-flowing, full, healthy. Uh, To that degree, there's also a, uh, a major contribution to the health of the body, to the calmness and serenity of the mind. So although in the pasana practice uh, we don't stress too much the health benefits, although the Buddha a few times in the teachings just mentions without going into much detail that one of the benefits of anapanasati is an improvement in health. So as we uh, start really listening to the breathing, the quality of the breathing changes. And one of the things that uh, can be seen, I'm certain that all of you have seen it, but you may not have extracted the implications from the seeing, is that as goes the breath, so goes the body. The breath has a powerful ability to condition the body so that by careful attending to the breathing, the quality of the breath changes. We're not trying to make it change, but it does change anyway. And as the breathing changes, the body changes. The direction in which the body changes that's so vital for us is that the body becomes more peaceful, steadier, more comfortable, so that we're more able to sit. We acquire a seat, as the ancients referred to it. This takes years, usually. Where uh, we have a physical foundation where the body has a certain degree of stability, comfort and stability. And from that physical foundation, we have uh, some help in terms of looking carefully, listening carefully to some of the highly charged states that come up. It's not enough for the body to be able to sit in a steady and comfortable way, but it certainly does help. And so the first Uh, set of uh, awarenesses having to do with breathing have to do with getting to know the breath 
more and more intimately, becoming more and more familiar with the varieties of breath. And related to that, becoming more and more familiar with the impact of the breathing on the body. Now, of course, it affects the mind as well, but for purposes of exposition, for purposes of teaching, this first, the first four have to do with the, the body. Other kinds of knowledge that can come and are explicitly dealt with when we get to the last four have to do with a, a more of a sense of uh, there is a body, there is the body, beginning to see that it isn't so much my body, except perhaps legally and emotionally, but in a very profound way, uh, we, can, we begin to see how the body is uh, part of nature. These 16 contemplations can be seen as lessons. Buddha Dasa saw them as lessons. And what they do is unlock some of the secrets of nature. And we use the breathing, conscious breathing, to help unlock those secrets, to reveal them, those secrets of nature to ourselves. In Buddhist teaching, the mind is very much a part of nature. It's not separate. As we're attending to the, to the breathing, and whether you're attending to the breath at the nose or the abdomen or the chest, or later on when the concentration quite naturally becomes very strong, you might, you might find that it, uh, the best way for you to practice is to have no particular locus of attention, but to simply be open to the body and just be with the breathing as it is. You have no plan as to where you're picking that up. You're just attentive to the breathing. By the way, it's very important for you to know that nowhere in the Buddha's teaching, and I've checked this with people who know a lot more about the scholarly aspect of the Buddha's doctrine, and everyone agrees, in no place does the Buddha specify where you should pay attention to the breath. All the different views and opinions that we have picked up, oh, it's really the abdomen, no, it should be the tip of the nostrils, no, in, Th in Thailand it's more the chest. If you work in the Mahasi side or tradition, they prefer you stay down at the abdomen. Often it's the nose, some will say the whole body, the, whole, the full breath. I don't think we'll ever fully resolve it because the Buddha is not around. But as you practice, uh, personally, I have resolved it for myself. As you practice the third contemplation, which, which I would, the translation I would favor would be aware of the whole body or fully experiencing the entire body. The yogi breathes in, the yogi breathes out. Uh, it's a wonderful feeling uh, of sitting and breathing is incredible stability and the body is very very light now that happens naturally anyway if you should decide that you're a nose person or a tummy person uh, the key really isn't so much that as the fact that as your mind gets concentrated the breath starts flowing more freely as you begin to see into your emotional blockages, the breath starts flowing more freely as well. Okay. Um, in the full teaching, in the 16 contemplations, 
their varying levels of depth that you can take it. And of course, it's very much an individual matter. It can quite naturally lead into what are called the jhanas, extraordinarily deep absorptions. The breath, you go deeply in and through and beyond the breath. Sometimes the level of concentration and calm is so deep and thorough, settled, that it feels as if there's no breathing whatsoever. Nothing to worry about, but it does feel that way. Now, it's not necessary, it's not absolutely necessary to attain that level of concentration. And for those of us who are a little older, who don't have forever, it's fortunate that we don't have to have that degree of full concentration. Uh, however, I wouldn't, as sometimes I hear in the modern world, that being written off as a, a kind of circus trick. You know, that people who are like, sort of yogi, yogi freaks who can just get very concentrated and big deal. That's going to the other extreme because in my own experience, to whatever degree uh, there's depth to your concentration, although it isn't an end in itself in one way of looking at it, uh, it doesn't, uh, you don't necessarily become wise by being concentrated. It's of immense help when you then direct your attention to the arising and passing away of all forms. There's a, a steadiness and the journey is a much smoother and easier one if you have a lot of concentration at your back. But it's true. A certain degree of attentiveness is needed and then one can enter into vipassana and begin to see uh, enough to let go and that's what gets us free. The sutra, as it unfolds, uh, to some degree corresponds with the, uh, with the jhanas. For example, a number of you are familiar with, let's say, the first jhana. Uh, that is composed of a number of factors. One has to do with our ability to place our attention on the object, which we have to do often. We have to vitaka, uh, we have to put our attention on the breath. And then, uh, granted that our attention has been put on the breath, then there's vichara, which means can we stay with that? We've landed, now can we stay there? As our ability to do that increases, as it becomes more consistent and continuous, what comes out of it, and now we start to move into the second set of four, into feelings, Vedana. The first four, the body. The second, feelings. Here in this approach, feelings are, have to do with pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it's what uh, compels us to do most things. We are, to a great extent, driven by our, que our quest to gather up as, as many good feelings as we can and to avoid as many unpleasant feelings as we can. We've come here to get some good feelings. Big surprise. Instead of stress reduction, you get more stress. But supposedly it's on the way to going beyond stress. So stay in there. 
So as we learn to place our attention on the breath or whatever else you're using, but in this sutra it's the breath, as we learn to stay with it, what comes up is piti or rapture, a very joyful feeling. I know that a number of you have had it, and there are varying degrees of it. It can be quite intense, where the entire body is just suffused with joy. It's a, it can be a very powerful feeling. It can be quite exciting. Uh, out of that, uh, quite naturally, grows sukha, or a kind of peaceful happiness. Uh, piti is something that we get fed up with after a while. You get tired of just being in rapture. Just, I know you'd like some right now. And it is important to taste some joy. Very. But finally, uh, that starts to fall away and there's a more subtle energy that's sort of tucked inside it, which is now allowed to come to more fullness. And that's a, a, a happiness, a very peaceful happiness. The first is very stimulating, PT. The second is more soothing. And uh, finally, more useful for us. The ancients used an image to help us get a sense of this. And it's an image that I think is helpful for us, again, have, with the weather being the way it is. They said piti, or this exciting rapture, is like a traveler who's been out in a hot desert, uh, who's just parched and tremendously in need of something to drink and something to eat, to be refreshed, just really been in the sun. And as they're walking through the desert, they pass someone who's with wet hair and uh, fresh-looking, who says, oh yeah, there's a, wood, a wooded area and a nice clear spring of water and some vegetation. Not too far from here, you're going in the right direction. Immediately, there's a tremendous sense of joy and of excitement. And then sure enough, as you get closer to it, someone else walks by and they're also wet, their hair is wet, and they look... Uh, fresh and happy and, uh, and then you begin to see greenery and soon you get even closer and there's the water itself and it's very exciting and then you jump in and refresh yourself and have something to drink and nibble on, on some of the herbs and then you lie back wipe yourself, dry yourself, lie back and feel just total contentment that's sukha so, but you need both, right? They, they work together. And then, quite naturally, that leads to ikagata, or one-pointedness, where everything comes together. It's sort of the utmost kind of uh, unwavering quality of mind. And in, in this work, in, in, uh, in the work of jhana, or whatever level of concentration, it's all moving in that direction of the mind becoming unwavering and equanimous. So that it's fit, if it's even and steady, so that it's fit to do the work of deep looking and deep listening, to really hear those musical notes as they're played, to hear them exactly as they're played, without adding any of our own stuff our likes and our dislikes and our theories and our memories and our future uh, imagination or how much music we've heard in the past. and uh, Just hearing it as pure raw sound, a pure musical note, without any expectation whatsoever. Can we begin to do that 
with what? Well, with the feelings themselves. Part of the training in this second set, when we deal with feelings, is when the mind starts becoming happier, more joyful and more peaceful, of course it's vital to us as practitioners because it's inspiring. It gives us encouragement to continue to practice. You can read all the books that you like and listen to all the teachers tell you how wonderful uh, a peaceful mind is or how valuable shamatha practice is or how great this sutra, simple as it may seem on breathing is, but unless there's some real fruit that you can bite into, chew and taste and experience how delicious it is, why would you want to continue forever? There are people who have extraordinary faith, who go for long times, long time in practice. Over the years I've met some, I uh, have incredible respect. I would have quit a long time ago. But people who stay with it for whatever reason have deep faith that there really is something in this path. And then there's the taste of that fruit and the, of course, uh, natural tendency to attach to it. At which point the practice here is to again become familiar with these states. Familiar with states of rapture, familiar with states of uh, happiness and peace uh, so that we're not in trapped by them. So that they become normal things that we can come to, tap, enter into, but we don't have to come uh, deal with them in such a desperate way. Part of how that happens is that there it's very helpful to have a teacher or a spiritual friend or somebody who's already gotten caught and has already been helped to let go because it's very powerful when you get that, that still and that spacious. And yet there, there's more to go. But in this one we come to know the full range of feelings of likes and dislikes and lots of times feelings just neutral. We eat something and we don't particularly like or dislike it we look at a house and see the color combination, how it's been painted, and we're not particularly attracted or averse to it. It's okay. And then at other times, we've got to have it, or we've got to not have it. And then out of the feelings, we come to the mind itself. The third set of four. We've now covered eight contemplations, all of which have the breath. The very early ones, the breath is exclusive. We're, we're doing that since Friday night, last night. Uh, the subsequent ones stay with the breath, but enlarge the scope of attention so that, and that'll be clear to you uh, either tomorrow or the day after. Many of you already understand where we'll be uh, learning how to pay attention to the full range of mental and physical events while breathing in and breathing out and see the, the value of, the, of conscious breathing, how it helps us actually do that. So now we come to the mind itself. And here the challenge is what we think of as self-knowledge in a very ordinary way. Who am I? Beginning with the ordinary answers to that very ordinary and often 
ask question. And beginning to see the different mind states that come and go, that color our, comp our consciousness. Sometimes coloring it, the main ones are what are called the kilesas, the tendency of the mind to crave something, to want, to be attracted to something and then to try to gather it to itself and hold on to it, whether it be a person, a taste, an idea, anything. The second uh, set of major mind states have to do with the opposite, not wanting. When we're trying to rid ourselves of something, separate ourselves from something, annihilate something, prevent it from being with us. We spend a lot of time, time doing both. And many mind states are uh, variants of these two. And the third is ignorance or confusion where the mind is running around in circles, is in conflict, is dull, is hazy, uh, is living under a shadow. It's the uh, opposite of, of clear. And in the, the challenge of this particular contemplation, the main aspect of it, is getting to know these mind states when they arise, to thoroughly experience them, over and over. We have to do it more than once. And of course, we're beginning to get into the heart of Vipassana work as we learn how, how to do that. How do, how do you learn to become aware of fear rather than to just be afraid? There's all the difference in the world. How do we learn to... Uh, what does it mean to be attentive to sadness rather than to... Uh, be caught up in sadness, to be sad. And to get to know the mind states that are the opposite of this. The mind, what does it feel like when the mind isn't grasping and wanting something? What's that like? What's it like when the mind is not angry or pushing things away? What's it like when the mind is clear, clear as a bell? It sees that the sky is blue, the grass is green. It sees pain as pain, hot as hot, cold as cold, and so forth. Looks like we'll make it. We'll be able to finish the fourth. The fourth, of course, we've now gone through 12 contemplations uh, the breath helping us every step along the way to help us get to know the body, become more intimate with the experience of, of this body, uh, to become more intimate as we experience feelings, the, wide, the variety of feelings that visit us, to become intimate with mind states, particularly the ones mentioned and other ones that... Uh, exist too, not quite as dramatic. And the, f the last set of four are uh, sometimes referred to as dharmas. And here's when we enter into pure vipassana, pure insight work. Here, everything that's co come before us, that's gone before, one through twelve, the endless variety of breaths and bodily states, the endless variety 
of feelings that visit us, the endless variety of different mind states that come and go. Now, uh, the emphasis is not so much on the content of all of that, which if you've gone through this course of training, you're now much more um, adept at being able to be with the body in its many ways, to be with feelings in its many ways, and to be with the mind itself in many ways. Now, as we begin to look carefully at all that's come before us, before this, we begin to see that uh, it arises and passes away, that there's no ultimate fulfillment in any of the forms that appear and disappear, no ultimate fulfillment, and that everything that's come and gone lacks self, it lacks a core. Uh, the most, we will go into that, the last four, in, in a fair amount of detail. That's the part that uh, Buddha Dasa helped me with uh, tremendously. At this moment, I have a, a vivid memory of uh, a day pretty much as hot as this one in Thailand. And he was very, very generous with his time. Uh, people would come from literally all over the world. And if they were really interested, you could find your way and spend time with him. And he'd sit in front of his little hut and answer your questions, and he just loved to, to do that. And his answers were very, very thorough, and he was just totally patient. You never felt rushed. This was a three-hour exchange uh, where I had so, certainly had been told that the full awareness of breathing was a full practice, and I knew it was, but somehow I didn't in a deep way. And so I, w I was familiar with more of his other teachings, not as much with this. But we started to talk about this. And to make, to sum up three hours in just a few seconds, uh, finally we got to a point where it was eyeball to eyeball and what he said to me was, and he used an example, he described the practice and the particular way in which the mind works, the breath works, the body works, and he said, can you see that the body is empty? Can you see that feelings are empty? Can you see that any mind state that's visited you is empty? Can you see that the breath itself is empty? Can you see that the breather is empty? There is no breather. There is no meditator. In short, everything is empty. Can you see that the whole sutra finally is not about the breath, but it's about the fact of emptiness? That's the supreme teaching of the Buddha. We'll explore further what this emptiness means. Uh, for some of you who are a little bit newer to it, it doesn't mean worthless. And perhaps empty is not the right word, but it's the best that most of us can do with the English language right now. Okay, as they say in the newspapers, to be continued.
This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 10, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.